0: that can help detect inflammatory conditions on the uterine lining that might be preventing you from becoming pregnant or staying pregnant. If you've experienced implantation failure or multiple miscarriages, ask your doctor about receptivity DX. Uterine inflammation, if found, can be treated, providing a new pathway to achieving a successful pregnancy. Receptivity DX, because the journey's worth it. Hi, everyone. We're back with another episode of Fertility Dots Uncensored. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Abby Eblin from Nashville Fertility Center. And today I am joined by my captivating and charming co-host, Dr. Susan Hudson from Texas Fertility Center. Hey. And Dr. Carrie Bedient from the Fertility Center of Las Vegas. Hello. How are you guys doing?
2: We are good. We are good. This is weird. Like we we've mentioned before we usually record on weekends and stuff like this. This is a Monday night. It's a little
1: <laughs> a little
2: off our norm.
1: It's very odd. I keep looking out the window and it's dark out there. I'm like, how did it get dark? <laughs> um, it's Monday night. So of course it's dark cuz this is after work for all of
0: us. So and we're all kind of hungry cuz we started talking about pizza and our favorite types of pizza. Mm. So Carrie, you were telling us you like hand tossed. Is that what you said?
1: I like the hand tossed one there is a place here in town that makes hand tossed pizza and they i they think they put a ton of olive oil on the bottom of the crust Mm, and and then they fire cook it whatever the fancy term for that is (laughs) and it's delicious and i am dreaming about it and i got pizza last night and it couldn't be that kind because they were closed by the time we ordered it and um I'm I'm remorseful of that because I am thinking about that pizza. It's like the substitute. You know how you eat something where you're usually it's when you're on a diet and you're trying to eat something healthier and all you can think about is the original version. Well, <laughs> not that the pizza that I ate last night was healthier, but I all I can think about is the original version.
2: Carrie, I, I think that's pretty that's pretty much my life as a celiac talking about pizza. A celiac. It's <laughs> is, is, is Sitting there thinking about the good old days when I got to choose between those three different types of pizzas yeah. <laughs> versus what, what do you happen to do? But I have to say this last weekend, we, we went to the coast and we went to this lovely little pizza place, and they were very, very accommodating and made like huge efforts to make sure they didn't have cross contamination and things like that. Wow. And I can tell you, they were some of the sweetest people on the planet. And we well, so- should
0: name the place since they were such sweet, <laughs> nice people and so good to you you should they were should they were
2: in Texas so they they were if you go have pizza there you're you're going to know where I'm talking about and it it was <laughs> it was fantastic and like I said I mean the people were so sweet and so kind that that just you know Aww. made up for the fact that I couldn't have everything I could possibly want
0: <laughs> well I personally love deep ditch deep dish pizza nothing like pizza in Chicago it's delicious
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm, and there's all I I would tend to go more towards deep dish than like the super thin crust pizza, yeah, yeah. and like real crust, yeah. Yeah.
2: Like, it's okay. If I want toppings um, on a cracker, I'm going to eat a cracker.
0: <laughs> Although, well, I will tell you, we, a few years ago, we went to the Mafia Coast and we were in Naples and Naples is the home of the margarita pizza, apparently. And mm-hmm. their pizzas were really good. They're paper. They're really thin, but they were so good. They were delicious. Yes. Were
1: the crust crispy or were they soggy?
0: They were crispy. Crispy. Mm. They were good. It was good. It was just good pizza. Mm-hmm. Yummy. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm hungry.
0: <laughs> Me too. Well, <laughs> onto the business of our podcast. Um, we're going to do a questions episode. And this is going to be kind of a mashup, a mishmash of lots of different questions. Yeah. So Susan, what questions do you have for us?
2: All right. Here's our first one. My husband and I have been trying to conceive for a year. I'm 33 and he's 31. Formal ultrasounds showed a dermoid on the left, four centimeters, and on the right, three and a half centimeters. Mm. Um, I've had an endometrial lining of six millimeters. Day three results showed normal AMH of five, FSH of 4.5, LH 2.5, estradiol of 40. Um, last five cycles has have resulted and it says egg whites, but I'm pretty sure it's not supposed to say that. Egg whites <laughs> meeting on day nine and positive LH. Oh, egg white discharge. That's what she was talking about. Ah, egg white discharge on day nine positive LH test on day 14 through 16. What is the cause for cervical fluid and cervix lowering to be a week before an LH surge? Is there ever a reason to keep the dermoids instead of removing them? Thank you for the podcast. I've learned so much.
0: Yeah. Did I hear that? I mean, I heard all those other things, but she said she has a four centimeter dermoid on one side and a three on the other. Yeah. Those need to come out. Tell us what a dermoid is. A dermoid is um, tissue. Um, Most of the time it's benign. I mean, I'd say 95% of the time, if not greater, benign. But basically, it's three different tissue components. Um, So we're made up of mesoderm, ectoderm, and endoderm. So every tissue you have in your body started out as one of those three tissues and differentiated into the tissue it, it currently is. And so these are sort of just vestigial rest of tissue that can contain three different components. Almost everyone I've ever taken out has hair in it. So that's a real common thing to see hair in them. Hair, um, they can have uh, sometimes they teeth. Can have teeth. Um, yeah, and it's hard. It don't look At- just like teeth, but they're hard little crunchy areas that are kind of made of the same thing that your teeth are made of. They can also have really weird things in them too. Like people have been known to have hyperthyroid thyroidism overactive thyroid when it's actually thyroid hormone that's coming from one of the remnants in, in the dermoid so they're benign structures, but they're but they also can usually contain this thick, like it almost looks like pus, it's like sebaceous material, and that can be really caustic and really irritating to the body cavity. And so, and, and just in my own personal experience, when you take dermoids out, it's almost like the ovary just doesn't function very well when they're in there for some reason. And so, generally, I've had really good luck when I've taken them out on patients and they've done really well and gotten pregnant pretty quickly after they come out. So, I, I don't know that there's data to support that, but that's just my own personal experience. But those are big. Big dermoids, they need to come out. You just don't want them to get bigger and rupture and, you know, spill that sebaceous material in your abdomen. It can be really irritating. Um, and about 10% of the time they're bilateral. And so, you know, on both sides, which is, you know, what what our listener apparently has.
2: And I believe once you get to the age of 40, if you have bilateral dermoids, you have to have them out because of an increased risk of malignancy, if I'm remembering somewhere in the brain deposits. So you're yeah, going to you need big, to get them out at some point. Yeah, yeah. And and so, you know, this is probably a reasonable time, especially you have an AMH of five, which to me says you got lots of eggs. And so yeah. you can... Lots of reserve. You can, so the big downside to having the surgery is, there's always a very small risk that one you could lose an ovary, okay, but there, there is a chance anytime we remove cysts, whether it's dermoids or endometriomas or just benign cysts that are there for, you know, other various and sundry reasons, we are going to lose some eggs. That's just the way that works. Um, but you've got quite a few to spare at this point. and so I think it would probably be a reasonable thing to do. Um, and she was asking about kind of what's what's the purpose of of the cervical mucus and change in cervix position? I mean, I think it's just one of those things that kind of happens. I mean, cervical mucus, I mean, serves a purpose, but...
1: Cervical mucus is hormonally responsive. And Mm -hmm. so depending on where you are in your cycle, it's either, you know, thin and easily swum through by sperm, or it's very thick and sticky and makes it very, very difficult for anything to swim through. Um, And so that does tend to be hormonally responsive. And so part of what I'm wondering is just if she has an AMH of five that makes me think she's probably got some more regular periods or a higher likelihood of that or the very least ovulatory dysfunction. And so I'm wondering if there's just a cross communication of the hormones and that's why she's getting it that much earlier. Um, You know, it can also be that she's just reading it wrong. Um, Mm -hmm. Not that she doesn't know her body, but that maybe her body doesn't correlate exactly with what all the books say. Um, You know, that's that would be the main thing that I would think of. I mean, cervical position, that depends a lot in a part of, well, how full is your bladder? How full are your bowels? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Are you, are you gassy? Are you not gassy? <laughs> Things that really don't have a whole lot of a whole lot to do with anything beyond just how is your body at that particular moment in time when you are trying to assess that?
0: All right. All right. Let's one get other to quick try. thing about one other quick thing about the dermoid I was going to say is you know normally your ovaries are about two by three centimeters and with the dermoids when they stretch your ovary out that much you know Susan was making the point that you have a lot of extra eggs and I agree with that and the downside to keeping the dermoids in is they're probably going to only get bigger and stretch your ovaries out even more and almost cause hydrostatic damage to the eggs that you have so I think the sooner you get those things out the better.
2: Good deal. All right. Our next one. What are hemorrhagic cysts and how do you prevent them?
1: So hemorrhagic cysts are, to a large degree, what they sound like. They are cysts, so fluid-filled cavities filled with blood. And sometimes they are just a natural consequence of ovulation where there was a little blood vessel that got carried away with itself. And instead of there being a nice little corpus luteum cyst, which is where the egg is released and then has collapsed back down on itself and is turned into a little progesterone factory in addition to the estrogen, instead of that happening, it fills with blood. And so the concerning thing about hemorrhagic cysts is if they continue to grow and they get bigger and bigger and bigger, and then they rupture because blood is very, very irritating and caustic to the the inside of the pelvic cavity. And so... Whenever that happens, that's part of the reason why we watch cysts, right? You know, you get cysts every single month when you ovulate and they're called follicles. Um, when they get bigger than, I would say, usually six to 10 centimeters is where we really start to pay close attention Of okay, this has got a higher risk of either rupturing or causing an ovarian torsion. Um, that's when we start to worry about it. You know, it's a little bit smaller than that if you are menopausal. But um, but that's, that's what a hemorrhagic cyst is. Now, how you stop them, you only have so much control over that, particularly when you're trying to get pregnant. And oftentimes... Being on birth control pills where you're preventing ovulation will stop them from happening. Um, But that's not particularly helpful when you're trying to get pregnant. So it's not something we have a huge amount of control over.
2: I think it's one of those things that, you know, we see them a lot because we are scanning you all the time. And it's one of those things that happens a lot in women on a regular basis. You just don't see them, okay? Mm -hmm. And so... That's that's something to be aware of. And and again, like Carrie said, sometimes they do become problematic and in, in, in that type of thing. Um, but you know, the, the, where you ovulate from the, the corpus luteum is very, very vascular and it's very easy for one of those little blood vessels to get nicked and end up having bleeding into it. And, and kind of the, the good thing is that the follicle usually kind of has a maximum size. It's going to grow or the, the cyst and it essentially puts pressure on it. And that's why the bleeding stops. So it, it really usually only causes a big issue if it actually ruptures and again, like Carrie said, gets into the rest of your belly um, or if we have torsion where the ovary actually turns on itself and that that's a
0: surgical emergency. Mm-hmm. The good side of that Corpus luteum being vascular though is the sole purpose of the corpus luteum is to produce progesterone in the second half of your cycle and really to maintain that production throughout the first trimester until the baby's placenta takes over. So the reason it's so vascular is so you in that one little tiny place in your ovary, you have to make enough progesterone to sustain that baby until 12 weeks. And so, um, so sometimes it just bleeds a little extra because of all the vascularity, but for the most part, it's pretty benign and and those cysts will go away and, and not be a big deal if you're not pregnant. Absolutely.
2: Okay, our next one. I am a rape survivor, and I find it terrifying to seek fertility and gynecologic care, in particular, anything that might be painful or out of my control. I have a total panic attack at the thought of anything involving anesthesia or male doctors. Have you had patients with such issues? And if so, how do you handle this?
1: Oh, that's so tough.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: All right. Well... I'm sorry you've had that experience in life because that's horrible, universally awful. Yeah. Um, Yes, we have all had patients who have had that kind of background because sadly, uh, rape and sexual assault are extraordinarily common. And so we don't always know when we're dealing with those patients, but um, they're very, very common. And so a lot of this is going to be finding a gynecologist that matches your style. And so it sounds like you are someone who would appreciate uh, a person who is very communicative because there are some docs who will just go in and do a pelvic exam, for example, as fast as they can but won't necessarily tell you everything they're doing. And there's other docs who will tell you every single step of what they're doing. Neither is right or wrong, but but there's a big style difference that you may appreciate because you may appreciate someone who says, okay, you're going to feel my hand now. Okay. You're going to feel pressure. Okay. You're going to feel more pressure, a little deeper. You're going to feel a soft Q-tip. Those types of things may help you to walk through it. Um, Knowing what to expect is also really helpful. So, that's something where if you can figure out, okay, what am I walking into? Am I walking into a saline ultrasound? Am I walking into an HSG, a retrieval? Those types of things, knowing what to expect can be really helpful. Mm-hmm. There are going to be times when the anesthesia is just going to happen. And um, that's something where talking to your docs ahead of time and knowing, okay, this is what's going to go on. And anytime someone has anesthesia, there are a ton of people around and that maybe a helpful factoid for you to know, because a lot of what people fear is, oh my gosh, I'm going to be by myself with someone. And and that's very rarely the case. I mean, when I think of my retrievals, for example, there's usually four or five people in the morning in the the pre-op area. There's a minimum of five people in the room when we're doing the procedure. And then there's another handful of people in the PACU area afterwards. And so all of those things knowing those things can help you get through it. I would very much recommend having a counselor therapist, somebody who can walk through all of this with you, as well as whoever your local support group is, friends, family, partner, whatever, um, because they can help you through some of the cognitive therapy techniques that can help you, whether that is visual imagery, meditation um, finding whatever tools work for you music watching random cat videos on whatever <laughs> um, whatever it takes and none of us take any offense when someone says I really hate this and in fact if someone said to me I love this I would be far more worried than the people who tell me on a regular basis I hate going to the gynecologist I'm like totally hear you there um and so those are the types of things that you can do because it's the more those techniques you learn the better you will be served. Because you're going to have to, I mean, you're going to encounter docs through your entire life. And if you're not encountering healthcare, that means you're not really probably taking great care of yourself in all the ways that you should. So it's well worth it to say, okay, I I am going to take control and I am going to go through some of these things because I know that I can do it and flip the script. So it's not, I'm not in control. I'm subject to these people. It's no, I made the decision to come here because this is important to me and my health is important to me. So it's reframing it and that can be very helpful.
0: I think it's also good to have a supportive person there with you if you're in an exam room, whether it's your husband, partner, wife, mother, whoever, it's nice to have somebody in the room with you that you trust and you can hold their hand. and, And with my patients too, like Carrie said, I walk them through when I do a pelvic exam and I always say at any point, if you want me to stop, If this is uncomfortable, you just tell me and I'll stop. You're in control, not me. And I think like you said, Carrie, I think the control issue, if you feel out of control, that makes it worse. So, you know, I think for exams, uh, you know, at some point you are going to have to have a pelvic exam. But I think if you can feel the most comfortable, comfortable and most controlled there by having another person there and feeling like you're more in charge of what's going on. Um, I think as far as sedation goes, I think some people are scared of sedation. Some people I know if they would prefer to be sedated, for certain things. And so for certain different procedures, we can sedate people if that's something that makes you feel more comfortable. And there are many people in the room when you're under sedation and the anesthesia person is generally up by your head, making sure you're breathing and that sort of thing. They're not down below, um, you know, in the place that we would be when when we're doing procedures. Uh, But I think things like mindfulness are helpful, but just anything that you can do emotionally to kind of get yourself prepared for that and think about it ahead of time and kind of walk through your mind what's going to happen beforehand, I think will be helpful.
2: Too. Yeah. And I, I would have to say that I think, you know, being very upfront with your reproductive endocrinologist mm-hmm. or your gynecologist, if, even if you're just going for your pap smear and letting us know, because I know, like, I try to always be very gentle, always try to talk people through things. But I had somebody just earlier this week and she was like, I am probably going to cry when you are doing this because. That's just what I do. And I was able to talk her through it and we made it through it without tears. And so, you know, even the most gentle person, if you let them know, hey, this is like a huge, huge thing Mm -hmm. for me, And, you know, it's because of something I've experienced in the past. People will take additional time and effort. And if they don't, then go find somebody else.
1: Mm -hmm. And with respect to male docs, so there's certainly a lot of female REIs out there. I think our clinics definitely skew female in terms of all the staff. Now, the men who go into this field tend to be in one of two categories. One is really touchy-feely, warm and fuzzy. The other is super cerebral. Um, Mm -hmm. And you just got to find find someone that appeals to you because um, there are a lot of places where the docs work together. And so you may have predominantly a, a female doc, but you may have to encounter some of the male docs along the way. And a lot of that is knowing, okay, if you've got, if you really trust your doc, she's probably not going to be dealing with people that she doesn't trust because mm-hmm. The ethics within this field are huge and all of us know better than to get involved in a practice where somebody else, male or female gives off a weird vibe. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's bad for our mental, our mental health as physicians <laughs> and it's bad for patients and it's bad for business. Um, And so, so most of the time, if you can find a, a female doc that you like and, and you know that there are male docs in the practice and say, okay, what are these circumstances where I would encounter those male docs? And, how how do we address that? Because there's some where they're going to say, oh, yeah, you're totally fine. He is the biggest teddy bear. And there are going to be others where you're, where you're going to say, yeah, he's probably not a great fit for you personally. <laughs> um,
2: and, and knowing
1: that's key.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Our next one. Hi there. Thank you for sharing your knowledge with us being this amazing podcast. My husband and I have been trying to conceive for two years. I'm 33 and he is 38. Semen analysis came back great. AMH 3.6. HSG, saline, and hysteroscopy, including biopsy, came back normal. Regular periods every 26 days which lasts two to three days. We did three cycles of Clomid follicles, barely got to 16 millimeters. We did four cycles on letrozole, and I always got two follicles around 21 to 26. Hmm. We did IUI during one of those cycles, but never got a positive pregnancy test. We are starting IVF soon. Do you? Do I have good chances? I'm so scared my eggs could all be bad. Is there another test I should do prior
0: to IVF? Thank you. I mean, you're in the best possible category. You're under 35, you have a great AMH, your HSG is normal, his semen analysis is normal. And yeah, if you think about Clomid and IUI, and in fact, kind of what the American Society for Reproductive Medicine says now, really Clomid and Letrozole by themselves, I mean, and certainly we do it in certain patients, but the data really shows it's probably not a lot better than just having sex at home without Clomid or Letrozole. Um, a lot of people just don't want to jump right in and do IUI. And so even in the one cycle that you did in and IUI, you know, you had maybe a 10% chance of success. Whereas with IVF, if you stimulate really well, and I think you will, I think you're going to get a lot of eggs. I think you're going to have a really a lot of nice embryos. And by that, I mean, maybe three or four if you're lucky. But with each one of those embryos, you have about a 60% chance of 55, 60% chance of success. So I, I think you're going to do great.
2: I would recommend getting, if you're concerned about quality, I like to get an FSH and estradiol um, to look at your ovarian reserve as well. I kind of think of, I like the trifecta. I like the antral follicle Mm -hmm. count. I like the AMH. I like the (laughs) FSH and estradiol. And if all of those look warm and fuzzy, then I feel warm and fuzzy. Um, Know that sometimes... You know, IVF is not only therapeutic, but it's also diagnostic. There are going to be things that you and your doctor learn about your bodies and, all, you know, kind of all the fertility stuff that goes in there um, as you go through the cycle. I, I had a patient that was doing IVF just recently and um, ended up not getting very many good eggs and they were doing it really for an elective reason. And it was unexpected, but you know, it's 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 part of who who some people are. Um but I would I think everything looks you know pretty darn good from your standpoint at this this stand
1: this juncture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah worth giving a shot. Yeah. A
2: okay our next one is hi just listen to your latest podcast about supplements it came at a perfect time as I just finished an IVF transfer and I started being more strict about taking my prenatals I'm having a hard time finding a supplement that meets um, different criteria and is certified are are there any that you specifically recommend to your
0: clients or brands you like I think nature made was one that when we had the supplement video or supplement talk I think um, We'd said Nature Made was USP certified. And there's another certification too that that tells you that you're kind of getting what you expect to in supplements. Mm-hmm. But I think Nature Made is the one that I think here. I know at Walgreens, and I think it's a really good supplement. And those are those are the ones I generally buy.
2: I'm a big fan of Therologics. I I, I trust their, you know, quality control and that type of thing. Um, I would say definitely be taking those prenatal vitamins. The best data says make sure you're taking them consistently, ideally two to three months before you're conceiving. Um, for our other listeners, um, just to stay on top of those and. Honestly, the most important prenatal vitamin is the one you actually take. Okay. Into oh, that, so yes. If it tastes disgusting and you're like, "There's no way I can take this," and you kind of intentionally or unintentionally forget because it's such a terrible experience, find something else.
1: Yes. When you're looking for um, quality and what to look for, I want to say it's both USP and NSF. Yeah, are... I can
0: remember the other. I knew there was some other three. Numeral thing that was good.
1: <laughs> those are those are the letters that you're looking for because that's that's where they've had an external organization kind of review their stuff.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um,
1: I I would agree with Susan that the one the one that's best for you is the one that you will actually take. Um, and so playing around with that is helpful. You know, Nature Made is a good store brand. Theralogics is a little bit higher end. They're a little more expensive, but you know they've spent a lot of time thinking about that. You know, I, I really, I primarily want you to take the one that you're willing to take. So I don't have a whole lot of huge opinions on that. Um, Well, and gummy vitamins too, prenatal vitamins come with in
0: gummies and some of them have iron and some of them don't. But, but I find that gummies are a lot easier for me just to pop in when I'm getting ready and, and not have to worry about having water and all that. So, you know, something like that may be helpful, too. And it may be better tolerated for, for pregnant women as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes there's a hard time with the gummy is actually getting everything delivered appropriately, which I know is why not everything can come in a gummy. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, sometimes there's powders that can be really helpful. You dissolve them in whatever liquid that you can tolerate and that sits a little bit better than a big capsule. So, you know, really we want you to just make sure you're taking it.
2: Yep. That's the important part. Okay. Next one. Hello, ladies. Lovely podcast. Backstory. I'm almost 36. My husband is 26. We have been trying for four years to get pregnant and recently just went through our first failed round of IVF. My clinic before my IVF clinic had a basic blood test flag for insulin resistance. So I've been taking metformin. My husband flagged at the IVF clinic for motility. He is taking Theralogic's motility. We ended up with two very abnormal embryos. He said with my AMH 1.7 and my age, he's never seen such bad embryos. He said they were growing slowly and couldn't test until day six. We eat healthy and exercise, but I did notice we both had very hard two weeks spout of COVID this January when we retrieved May 5th. He wanted us to go straight to egg donor. What should I do?
0: She said they made them to, to blastocyst, though they developed to the stage of blastocyst. Yeah. By yeah. Day, six. day
1: six, which is. Day
2: sixes. Yeah, that's yeah. not that bad. Day five, day six. Those are, I mean, we draw lines between them and say day five is better than day six, but quite honestly, they're about the same quality embryos. Yeah. I
1: mean, day five is an A, day six is a B, day seven is a D. Yeah. Like. You get the A or the B, we're fine.
0: And it's not clear. She didn't say anything about genetic testing either. I think she was just talking about morphology, correct? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. But if they made it, if he called it a blastocyst on day... If it made it to day six it was a two of them
1: two of them yeah yeah I mean the so the thing that I keep thinking about is I have a I have an album that's got all my baby pictures in it from the babies that like that I've gotten Christmas cards from over the years and there's one very specific one that I remember because this adorable baby was the ugliest egg I have ever seen. I mean, all my my embryologists specifically called me over at BDN, You got to look at this. And that Um, we were all worried that nothing was going to fertilize, much less grow. And I'll be darned if that kid didn't turn in or that embryo didn't turn into a beautiful kid. And I just recently had an embryo that I was like, oh, I don't want to transfer this. This is like one step off of dead. And yep, we are fully pregnant and she's got a high-rising hcg and we're good to go and so um just like you wouldn't judge a book by its cover um, Mm -hmm. don't judge an embryo by how cute it is like (laughs) if that's what you got then that's what you got and go for it
0: Um, my my oldest child was the crappiest looking embryo that i had seen or transferred to anybody in six months and when that embryo was transferred to me, I was crying when the transfer was done because it was such a crappy embryo. And He's a cute boy now, or handsome boy, I should say now. So you can't, like you said, you can't judge a book by its cover. You just never know. Right.
2: So yeah. I, I would say that, you know, if you had COVID, I mean, maybe, who knows? You know, we know there's all kinds of funky stuff that goes around, but I would say if we're worried about quality, I would have you taking DHEA I'd have you taking CoQ10. I don't -hmm. see anything in what you've talked about. And I think this is what Carrie and Abby are saying is do another cycle and, you know, see what, ask your doctor what they can do to change up your cycles. I mean, we've all got our little bag of tricks of, you know, okay, we didn't get quite what we wanted to this time. What would we change? And Mm -hmm. if, they say, by what you're telling us, with all your labs and everything, if they're saying there is nothing to change, I would do absolutely nothing different, and you only can go to egg donor, I might get another opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, But I think he got that from us, too. The,
0: the other thing, too, is you know, how many of us, and I'm sure you guys have been in the same situation, where you see somebody, I can think of several people who had just crappy cycles and didn't make good embryo. I mean, I can think of somebody right now who's a physician, actually. Crappy cycle, nothing to freeze. It was just a terrible Cycle. She went back through, and we changed. We tinkered a little bit. Mm-hmm. And she had like three normal embryos. I mean, it was like yeah. night and day difference. And sometimes we see mm-hmm. that. I mean, it's sometimes we don't. But but I've definitely seen it plenty of times. If it were me personally, I wouldn't give up after one cycle. I'd definitely do two cycles for yeah,
1: sure. I agree. Mm-hmm. One of one of our patients who actually was on on the podcast very early on where um and I think she talked about this on the podcast where we had three cycles and the first one had the worst embryo the first one didn't develop anything, the second one had the worst embryos ever. And the third one got beautiful ones and she's now on our second kid. And so, you know, give it a shot, keep trying, do it yeah. again. You're young. Yeah, at least clues. do one more
0: for sure. Yeah. If you can.
1: All right. How
2: about this one? Thank you so much for the awesome podcast. I'm 31 and my husband's 32. We've been trying to conceive for three years. A year into trying, I had an ectopic pregnancy and lost my right tube. Since then, we have various testing done and all results were normal other than a high MH of 5.6. Husband's sperm is normal. My periods are very short, usually one day with some spotting afterwards. We went to see a fertility doc and found out that I have a septum in my uterus. I have since had a hysteroscopy to fix the septum and a laparoscopy and all was clear left tube looks good my question is did the septum affect my ability to conceive or for implantation to happen can we now try naturally or should we pursue getting fertility treatment
1: i'm suspicious of your remaining tube. i mean the i think the septum it wasn't doing it didn't help anything it didn't help anything Yeah, it wasn't helpful. But the fact that you had an ectopic makes me worried that not only was that tube damaged, but the other one was damaged as well because they're just not Mm. that far apart. And anything that can tick off the one can tick off the other. And so I'm a little more worried about that tube than I am the septum. I'm glad it's out. And I don't know that you have anything to lose by trying to get pregnant besides maybe having another another ectopic <laughs> uh so if you do get pregnant get checked out right away watch those hormone levels be like be under your doctor's eyeballs um from the earliest point that you can but i worry about the tube more than i worry about the septum yeah
2: i agree i agree i mean there we resect a lot of septums that probably don't have a huge impact i mean once in a while we do resect a septum that we're like oh <laughs> <laughs> this one was a big reason, you know, and, and th- there are some whoppers, but um, I, I would say that realize that whatever is just like Carrie said, whatever affected your other tube that led to potentially that ectopic pregnancy, your other tube has been exposed to. And all the tests we can do, all the visualizations we can do of the inside or outside of your tube, we cannot test function, okay? We can tell if it's open or not. We can tell if it's um, enlarged or like a n- normal cal- caliber, if it's open or Closed, and, and unfortunately, that's where our technology lies.
0: Yeah, and I've, I've taken out my fair share of septums in the day, but um, I think the American Society for Reproductive Medicine was is the only society, you know, in in the world. There's several European societies, fertility societies that say there's no point in taking out a septum in somebody that's asymptomatic. It doesn't make a difference. And there was a recent randomized perspective study, European study that came out with like 80 patients that were randomized. And basically, the only side effects they showed were in the treatment cycle. I think one or two people had a uterine perforation from the procedure. So so kind of the most people sort of think septums, you know, you'd prefer not to have one, but they're probably not that big of a deal. I, I agree. I think it's more of a tuple issue that I'd be concerned about than a septum issue.
2: Mm-hmm. all right y'all want to do one more let's do one more one more Okay. Just want to start off with saying I'm so grateful for this podcast. I've learned a lot the past several months about fertility issues. I was wondering if you could shed some more light on endometriosis affecting fertility specifically with egg quality. I'm 38 with the AMH of 2.37. I have stage four endo in which I have gone through one round of IVF, which I had seven eggs retrieved. None of them made up to the blastocyst. My RE has added Clomid and increased and added Omnitrope to hopefully boost egg production and egg quality response respectively. Do you think this is a good plan? If this fails to work, do I need to consider egg donor or do you have any other recommendations?
0: The challenges are being 38 and sometimes even if you have endometriosis or you don't, it could you can have poor egg quality. So this this could happen to somebody without endometriosis. I think if you have endometriomas and you've had those removed, those can damage your ovaries, and I think in some ways, sometimes we just don't see as good an egg quality in people that have had extensive endometriosis. I think as far as what your embryo or what your um, doctor's doing or things that we would all do too, add you know, because there's a lot of things that we can't really control. But I think sometimes if we're trying to really throw in everything we can think of, we'll add in menopure, Men- menopure more commonly, but omnitroph, which I've become more of a more of a Uh, advocate for Omnitrope because I've had a few people that people that have done really well with it. And I think those are things that can help. I don't know that there's a lot of other things that they could do um, to help other than maybe increase your total dose to see if you could get more eggs.
1: The plan that they've got seems, seems pretty reasonable to me too. I mean, sometimes it's just tinkering with meds and seeing if we can get you through another cycle and I I think there's something to be said for the priming effect of a first cycle it's so expensive we're never just going to do it for the hell of it but um, but I I think I've seen a lot of people who have done better on their second cycle just because their body has kind of gotten used to oh this is what we do now okay fine and, <laughs> and they do a little bit better so
2: yeah I would take some DHEA and CoQ10 get that in your system yeah
1: agree all
0: right all right well to our audience thanks for listening and tune in next week for more. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review on Apple iTunes podcast. We'd really love to hear from you. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. Be sure and follow up and subscribe and stay updated on all things infertility.
1: You can also visit FertilityDocsUncensored.com to submit specific questions you have about infertility. All questions will be answered anonymously, so don't hold back. We love episode ideas, so let us know what you're thinking and what you want to hear.
2: As always, this podcast is intended for entertainment and is not a substitute for medical advice from your own physician. We'll talk to you all soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: This podcast is also brought to you by Fertility Pharmacy of America. Fertility Pharmacy of America is a fertility dedicated pharmacy that partners with physicians across the country in order to provide patients with a more personalized pharmacy experience. Pride ourselves on ensuring that every prescription is accurate, delivered in a timely manner, and most importantly, affordable for all patients. A team of trained pharmacists, technicians, and customer service representatives will be with you every step of the way, providing you with knowledge and exceptional quality care for all of your fertility medication needs. More than just a specialty pharmacy, they're a committed partner during your fertility journey. Fertility Pharmacy of America, making miracles happen every day. Please text or call us at 844-449-8767 and reference Fertility Docs Uncensored.